Hi there. You're listening to the Hellenistic Age Podcast. Interview episode on the Parthian Empire with Dr. Nicholas Overtune. Hello, everyone. Today I have with me Dr. Nicholas Overtume, Assistant Professor of History at Washington State University. Dr. Overtume is a specialist of the Parthian Empire and early Parthian history, with an emphasis on their interactions with the states of the Hellenistic and later Roman worlds. He is also the author of an upcoming book published by Oxford University Press entitled Reign of Arrows, The Rise of the Parthian Empire in the Hellenistic Middle East, set for a release date of May the 1st, 2020. First off, I would like to say welcome to the show. And as a starter, could you tell us a bit about your educational background and what led you to focusing on the Parthians in particular? Sure, I'd be happy to. So um, I'd like to begin by thanking you for having me on the Hellenistic Age podcast. Um, I'd also like to thank your listeners for their interest in what I believe is a very fascinating period and also very fascinating people. And I'm hoping that um, your listeners do get a lot of value out of uh, this discussion. So uh, as far as my, my educational background is concerned, I earned my bachelor's degree at the University of North Texas, which is a state school north of the Dallas uh, Metroplex. Uh, I got my BA in history with a minor in classical studies in 2008. Uh, While at the University of North Texas, I studied under Dr. Christopher Furman, who is a specialist in uh, policing in the Roman world. In fact, his uh, book, Policing the Roman Empire, also published by Oxford, is is a terrific book, and I highly recommend it. Basically, at the University of North Texas, I went to school to be a journalism major, but I started taking uh, history courses as a history minor and uh, just so happened to start taking ancient history courses with uh, Dr. Furman and really sort of fell in love with the subject matter. You know, the Greeks and the Romans, um, even though I I find them sometimes to be very despicable, I, I also find them to be very, very interesting. Um, undergrad, I decided to change my major from journalism to history, and I also decided to go to graduate school for uh, ancient history specifically. Uh, as a, a graduate student, I was accepted into the master's program at the University of, of uh, Maryland, uh, College Park. There, I earned my master's in ancient Mediterranean history in 2011. Uh, while at the University of Maryland, I studied under the um, the wonderful uh, and really just sort of um, a, a unbelievably productive scholar, Dr. Arthur Eckstein, who uh, uh, his sort of major work when I was going to school at Maryland was Mediterranean Anarchy, Interstate War, and the of Rome, which again, I could not recommend highly enough to your to your listeners. Um, it's it's really uh, one of those books that kind of revolutionized the study of the ancient Mediterranean world. Uh, and as you can imagine, under Arthur Eckstein, I had a very rigorous um, sort of study of the ancient Mediterranean world, focusing on in particular the Hellenistic world, but also the early Republican period. And it was at Maryland over the course of those three years of my MA that I really learned how to be an ancient historian, what that actually meant, getting into the sources, uh, understanding the uh, historiography. Uh, so it really was the boot camp that I needed to understand what it meant to be an ancient historian. Uh, at uh, University of Maryland, I uh, completed a thesis. Uh, the thesis was titled Contesting the Greatness of Alexander the Great, the Representation of Alexander in the Histories of Polybius and Livy. And um, I got a lot of good feedback from that thesis. In fact, I was able to publish two articles, uh, peer-reviewed articles out of that thesis, Uh, The first article that came out in 2012 was A Roman Tradition of Alexander the Great Counterfactual History that I published with Acta Antiqua. Uh, Then also the second um, 
uh, publication I had in 2013 was Six Polybian Themes Concerning Alexander the Great by uh, published in Classical World Journal, which uh, which was really wonderful for me at the time. And since I had had such a great experience learning about the ancient world and because I had had some professional success at Maryland, I decided to go ahead and earn my doctorate in ancient history. And so I started uh, my Ph.D., at Louisiana State University in 2011, and I completed it in 2016. My focus was ancient Mediterranean and Middle Eastern history. So I became increasingly interested in what's going on in the Near East and the Middle East over the course of my study at LSU. And so um, I have, of course, a Mediterranean background, but I also luckily have that Middle Eastern background as well. Uh, my minor fields at Louisiana State University were Greco-Roman art and architecture, but also medieval and Renaissance studies. I mostly wanted to have as sort of broad uh, sort of a, a study as I possibly could. And I feel that LSU was was a great way for me to do that. I studied there uh, under Dr. Stephen Ross, who focuses on sort of Parthian and Roman interactions uh, during the Roman Empire. But also I studied under Dr. Maribel Dietz, who uh, is a uh, expert in late antiquity. So it was really great. I had really sort of both worlds as far as where I wanted to go with my project. Um, at LSU, I was able to learn really how to become a professional. So I learned how to be an ancient historian at Maryland. I learned how to be, be a, a professional in this um, profession at LSU. I expanded my studies. I expanded my research. I expanded my teaching as much as possible. Uh, and I increasingly became interested in the little known Parthians. Uh, what's interesting about my project with the Parthians is that originally it was only supposed to be one chapter of research uh, for my dissertation. I was just going to introduce who the Parthians were. And when I was trying to do that, I realized that there wasn't much out there, which sort of piqued my curiosity. And um, it made me realize that there needs to be some work done on the Parthians. And so what began as a chapter for a dissertation actually became my dissertation. So that dissertation at LSU was titled Challenging Roman uh, Domination, the End of Hellenistic Rule and the Rise of the Parthian State from the 3rd to the 1st centuries BCE. Uh, out of that dissertation project, I got, again, a lot of good feedback and was able to publish two peer-reviewed articles. Uh, in 2006, I published The Rivalry of Rome and Parthia in the Sources from the Augustan Age to Late Antiquity with a journal known as Anabasis. And then also in 2017, I published The Parthian Rival and Rome's Failure in the East, Roman Propaganda and the stain of Crassus, uh, once again, in Acta Antiqua. Now, this is essentially the origin of my current book project. So uh, once I was uh, on the cusp of graduating in about 2016, I began work on a book project titled, as you mentioned, Reign of Arrows, the Rise of the Parthian Empire in the Hellenistic Middle East. Uh, and I quickly secured a book contract with Oxford University Press, which uh, that working relationship has been absolutely wonderful from the beginning to the end. They've been very supportive, very engaged, very excited about this project, as am I, and hopefully uh, as are your readers. Um, out of that book project, I have been very successful, thankfully, in being able to publish aspects of my current research. So if you'll indulge me, I'll just go ahead and run through some of my uh, recent uh, publications and also some publications that are on the future in case your readers are interested in them. So in 2016, I published uh, The Power Transition Crisis of the 240s BCE and the Creation of the Parthian State with the International History Review. Uh, in 2017, I published The Parthians' Unique Mode of Warfare, A Tradition of Parthian Militarism and the Battle of Cari uh, with Anabasis. 
In 2019, uh, with the journal Parthica, I uh, published a, a, an article named uh, A Reconsideration of Mithridates II's Early Reign, A Savior Restores the Eastern Frontier of the Parthian Empire. Also in 2019, I published The Power Transition Crisis of the 160s to 130s BCE and the Formation of the Parthian Empire in the Journal of Ancient History. Uh, again, in 2019, I published Considering the Failures of the Parthians Against the Invasions of the Central Asian Tribal Confederations in the 120s BCE with a journal known as Studia Ironica. Now, I also have three forthcoming articles and book chapters in what's scheduled to be published later in 2020 uh, is The Parthians' Failed Vassalage of Syria, the Short-Sighted Western Policy of Phraates II and the Second Reign of Demetrius II, 129 to 125 BCE with Acta Antiqua. Uh, also, I have a book chapter uh, in the uh, forthcoming book, Seen from the Ox Oxiartes Rock, Central Asia Under, Under and After Alexander. Uh, the title of that chapter should be A Fight to Reclaim the Central Asian Frontier, the Seleucid and Parthian Rivalry in the 230s BC. And then also another forthcoming book chapter of mine uh, with Brill's Companion to War in Ancient Iran, which I'm very excited about this companion. Uh, that chapter should be titled The Origins and Events of the First Romano-Parthian War, or I might shorten it just to The Origins of the First Romano-Parthian War. But that, that should be a very interesting um, connection between uh, various uh, Parthian scholars uh, and Sasanian scholars right now in uh, in the profession. Also, just very quickly, uh, it might interest your viewers, just sort of some of my teaching background. So uh, my teaching appointments uh, and experience are, I, I hope, uh, as diverse and broad as my, my research interests and my publications. Uh, during my PhD at LSU, I, I taught as an adjunct instructor in ancient history for the of History at LSU. I also taught as an adjunct instructor in world history for the Department of Social Sciences and History with the Baton Rouge Community College. Um, after graduating from LSU, I uh, earned a position as an instructor in ancient history for the Department of History at Missouri State University. I was there from 2016 to 2017. I then transitioned uh, to the University of New Mexico, where I functioned as a visiting lecturer in ancient history for the Department of History. I was there from 2017 to 2019. And my current position, which I just took up in the fall, is assistant professor in ancient history in the, for the Department of History at Washington State University. Uh, and I have been here since uh, just uh, last fall, so relatively new position. Um, I've taught dozens of classes on pre-modern world civ, pre-modern Western civ, uh, ancient Egypt, ancient Greece, the Hellenistic world, uh, the Roman Republic, the Roman Empire, late antiquity, the medieval world, ancient warfare, and art and culture in the ancient world. Um, I would really love the opportunity, and hopefully in the next few years, we'll have the opportunity to develop a class on the ancient Middle East. I think that there is a lot of interest uh, for a class like that. And so that's one of my, my uh, sort of goals in the future is to build that course. Uh, my research and my teaching demonstrate, I hope, my continued interest in the Hellenistic world and the place of the Greeks and the Romans, uh, but also the Parthians in that very important uh, period and in that very eclectic world. At the time of this recording, the show has not yet introduced the Parthians to the narrative. While people may know the name in reference to the unfortunate fate of Crassus at the Battle of Cari and the quote-unquote Parthian or parting shot, they might not know just how much of an impact they made in the Hellenistic world when they first emerged onto the scene in the mid-3rd century BC. Could you give a brief background on their origins as a major political entity? Yes, I'd be happy to. So... Um, first, I'd like to start off by letting uh, you and your, your listeners know that there's actually quite a big debate amongst um, scholars of the Hellenistic period, in particular in Parthian studies, 
on whether or not we should actually call them Parthians anymore, right? Um, there's actually been a move in scholarship to actually move away from Parthians in preference for the Arsacids or the Ar Arsacids. Um, uh, the idea being that the dynastic representation of who these, or what this power was, is more in line with sort of what we've been accustomed to in the Middle East. So, for example, the Achaemenid Persians or the Seleucid um, uh, Macedonians, uh, the Sassanid Persians who come after the Parthians. Uh, I prefer to really I can kind of use those terms interchangeably. I am not you know, so I don't have like strong views one way or the other necessarily. In fact, in my research, I, re I prefer Parthians just because uh, it's more familiar and uh, we're trying to make this, you know, we're trying to bring the Parthians to a, a more general and broader audience. So anything that makes the audience more comfortable with them, I'm happy for. But I thought it might be interesting for you guys to, to know that actually there is some debate on whether we should call them Parthians or, or if we should refer to the dynastic name or the Arsacids. And um, really, the, the answer is you can do whatever you're most comfortable with. Uh, but yes, yeah, so the Parthians, right? Kind of who are they? Where do they come from? How are they successful? So let's, let's just have a brief overview of that. So Parthians, as we know them. Um, actually began on uh, the Central Asian steppe, and they were a semi-nomadic people, uh, essentially a tribe, uh, and that tribe was known as the Parni, P-A-R-I, uh, sorry, P-A-R-N-I, and the Parni tribe really kind of slowly migrated over the course of the 4th and early 3rd centuries BCE until they migrated into what is today uh, Western Turkmenistan. And this is essentially where they started settling down and becoming sort of semi-nomadic, you know, more settled uh, as a people. Now, in roughly 280 BCE, the Parni actually unsuccessfully tried to expand into Seleucid-held lands uh, in the Iranian plateau. And so essentially we start seeing the early uh, friction building between the Parni and the Seleucids along the, the large and extensive eastern frontier of the Seleucid Empire along the Iranian plateau. Yet they're unsuccessful in the 280s. They are not able to crack the frontier, and so they're actually going to be pushed back into essentially what is Western Turkmenistan. Uh, however, in about two generations, roughly around 248-247 BCE, the Parni are going to crown a new king, and that king's name is Arsaces I, right? So the essentially the founder of uh, the Parthian state. And in fact, most scholars, including myself, see for, uh, sorry, 248-247 as the beginning of what's known as the Parthian era, right? Really kind of where we can have strong, tangible understandings of historically who are these people and where do they come from. Now, in the 240s, uh, what developed is what I have basically called in my research is a power transition crisis, which emerges in the Hellenistic Middle East. Essentially, a lot of different uh, geopolitical events happen all at the same time that help destabilize and create this sort of chaotic um, environment across the Hellenistic Middle Eastern world. And that's going to create a lot of ripple effects across uh, this expansive region and territory. So, for example, things that happen in the 240s to sort of help implement this power transition crisis are the Third Syrian War between the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. Uh, also, there is a major civil war between Seleucus II, the king of the Seleucids, and his brother Antiochus Herax, uh, which means the hawk. Uh, also, during this power transition crisis, there are going to be rebellions. In fact, two major satrapies rebel against the Seleucid Empire. This is going to be the rebellion in Parthia, the region Parthia, and the, the region of Bactria. So um, another thing worth noting is that we call them the Parthians, but they're not yet in Parthia actually, right? They're the Parni who are kind of on the doorstep of Parthia, so it's worth kind of understanding the variation there. 
So in uh, 239-238, Arsasa is the first, the king of the Parni, is going to successfully invade and seize the region of Parthia. So he's going to invade what is essentially northeastern Iran, and he is going to very quickly integrate the Parni people, his tribe people, into the already established inhabitants of Parthia, the region that is Parthia. And this integration of Arsaces and his tribal peoples into Parthia itself, this is what, again, kind of creates that identity of the Parthians as a whole moving forward in their history. Now, in the late 230s, Seleucus II, who has finally had a ceasefire with his brother during their ongoing civil war, he's going to unsuccessfully campaign in Parthia against Arsaces I and his army. And in, over the course of that unsuccessful campaign, Seleucus is going to be defeated and he's going to be forced to recognize Arsaces as king of Parthia, meaning that he basically has to recognize that Arsaces has established a, a rival kingdom in the Iranian plateau against uh, Seleucid hegemony, if you will, right, or, or domination, dominion. Uh, yet, that being said, in the early two, um, uh, sorry, the early 200s, Antiochus III, who's a new king of the Seleucids by this point, going to actually invade against Parthia again, and he is going to be successful in defeating the Parthians, and he's actually going to force the Parthians to become subordinate allies of the Seleucid Empire. He's also going to have similar success in Bactria and also in the Indus River Valley, kind of emulating Alexander the Great and Seleucus I and all that sort of fun stuff. Uh, the Parthians are actually mostly pretty docile, pretty quiet. Uh, between about 208 and the 160s BCE, when, uh, as I've talked about in my research, another power transition crisis emerges across the Hellenistic Middle East. Now, this power transition crisis is much like the one that we talked about in the 240s. Like, a lot of different things just sort of unravel and create a very chaotic, a very violent um, international environment. So, for example, uh, the Seleucid king uh, Antiochus IV, who many consider sort of the last great king of the Seleucids, although I would argue really it's kind of Antiochus VII who's the last great king. But anyway, Antiochus IV, um, famous for almost capturing Alexandria from the uh, from the Ptolemies, he suddenly dies on campaign in the Iranian plateau. And with his death, there is sudden widespread civil war and rebellion across the Hellenistic Middle East. Um, over the course of the late 160s, the entirety of the one. Uh, 50s and the entirety of the 140s, a new Parthian king eventually is going to emerge. This man's name is Mithridates I. And Mithridates I is going to take advantage of this crisis, of this uh, chaotic environment. And he is going to invade and occupy much of Bactria to his uh, east, but also almost the entirety of the Iranian plateau. And he's going to annex uh, Mesopotamia for the Parthians, meaning that the Parthians are going to gain the very valuable cities of Babylon in the 140s. Now, this essentially creates what I would call the Parthian Empire, in the sense that the Parthian Empire is now a multicultural imperial space, and it is now an, a hegemonic uh, rival of the Seleucid Empire. These two are equally matched uh, moving forward as far as their abilities as imperial states. Now, in the 130s and the early 120s, the Seleucids um, unsuccessfully are going to attempt to reclaim their lost eastern lands. We're going to have two major invasions by Seleucid kings, uh, the first being Demetrius II and the second being Antiochus VII. Demetrius II is going to be captured and defeat or defeated and then captured during his campaign. And then his brother Antiochus VII is not only going to be defeated, he is going to actually be killed in battle against the Parthians. Uh, and the Parthians can finally claim that they are indeed uh, kingslayers, uh, that they've been able to accomplish this great feat. 
Uh, Phraates II, who's the Parthian king at this time, actually marries uh, Demetrius II's daughter and sort of um, creates this sort of bond with the son of Antiochus VII. And there's sort of this idea that the Parthians are, are sort of maneuvering themselves as the Hellenistic successors, if you will, the legitimate successors of Alexander the Great's legacy in the Middle East. It's very interesting stuff as far as their sort of uh, imperial propaganda that starts beginning in this in this period. Now, the Parthians are actually going to threaten invasion of Syria, which is the last stronghold of Seleucid power and authority. However, before they're able to campaign in Syria, their eastern frontier almost completely collapses under the weight of Central Asian invasions. Several different tribal peoples are going to start invading and penetrating uh, Bactria and the Iranian plateau. And essentially, the Parthians almost have their entire uh, empire destroyed in the 120s. In fact, it's so bad at the height of these invasions that uh, at least two Parthian kings are killed in battle fighting um, these Central Asian invaders, trying to stem the tide of these Central Asian invaders. Uh, fortunately for the Parthians, they are saved by a new great king, one of the, um, you could argue, maybe the greatest of, of the Arsacid kings. If it's not Mithridates I, then it's this man, Mithridates II. He certainly lives up to his namesake. And Mithridates II is going to, over the course of the 110s, not only defeat uh, the Central Asian invaders, he's also going to secure uh, for the Parthians a very strong and stable eastern frontier. He's then going to turn his gaze to the west, where he's going to subdue and subjugate Armenia by 95 BCE. He's also going to begin ca campaigns to subdue the Seleucids in Syria, and he's going to do this throughout the late 90s. Uh, BCE. He does die before they are successful in subduing Syria completely. However, Mithridates' sons are going to take up their father's campaigns, and his sons are going to kill the Seleucid king Antiochus X. They're going to capture the Seleucid king Demetrius III, and they are finally going to place the Seleucid king Philip I as a vassal on the Seleucid throne at Antioch, which is their great imperial capital in Syria. Unfortunately for the Parthians, uh, this is really kind of a high watermark as far as they've, they've really kind of crested at this point. They've had a lot of imperial success and things are going to start getting rougher as we move into the first century BCE. Um, their unchallenged hegemony or dominion over the Hellenistic Middle East is, is very short-lived, in fact, because a series of destructive civil wars start emerging in what's known as the Parthian Dark Ages, which is essentially the first half of the uh, first century BCE. Also, we're going to see new conflicts that emerge with Armenia and the Armenians under Tigranes II are going to have a lot of success against the Parthians. And then also, um, as your readers are perhaps familiar with, uh, there's going to begin the burgeoning rivalry of the Parthians with Rome, which is soon to follow. Until the so-called secret histories of the Mongols, it seems that there are almost no accounts or records written by the nomadic peoples of the steppes themselves, and we therefore tend to rely on the writings of outside observers from the settled societies, such as Herodotus on the Scythians or Priscus on the Huns. How does Parthia fare in terms of sources, whether written or not, and is there much to go off on at all? Yeah, no, that's a that's a great question. And unfortunately, the answer is that the Parthians suffer from um, the same sort of uh, limitations and obstacles that you find with other uh, semi-nomadic and nomadic peoples when we're talking about the pre-modern world. Um, so let me just sort of give an overview of what we're dealing with as far as um, uh, Parthian history is concerned. So the history of Parthia and the Parthians is absolutely dominated by Greek and Roman writers. That is that is the bedrock and the greatest amount of our available source materials. That is the narrative history we have to work with. So anything that we know about the Parthians as far as history is concerned, or most of what we know about the Parthians as far as history is 
concerned is actually viewed through that Greek and Roman lens. So we always have to be aware of that when we're sort of uh, engaging these materials, engaging these sources and trying to sort of deconstruct and analyze these sources. By far the most important surviving source on the Parthians is um, what's known as the Survey of Pompeius Trogus uh, by Justin. So Justin was a writer in most likely late antiquity. He essentially was writing a summary of a much earlier work. Pompeius Trogus was an Augustan age writer who wrote uh, an account of really the history of the Middle East, but in particular two books that focused uh, specifically on the history of the Parthians. And Justin, um, you know, many hundreds of years later, decides to essentially summarize or create the Cliff Notes version of Pompeius Trogus's Augustan Age account of Parthian history. And Justin's survey is is by far the number one source of material and information uh, that we have for the Parthians. However, there, are, of course, are other Greeks and Romans that are very important in helping sort of piece together the picture of who the Parthians are. And so those other important authors are men like uh, Strabo, uh, Appian, Cassius Dio, Polybius, Plutarch, Pliny the Elder, Tacitus, uh, Solus, and Memnon, just to name a few. Um, there's actually a really important Jewish perspective to all of this offered by Josephus in the books of the Maccabees. And um, these are not necessarily Greek or Roman understanding, so they have a different sort of uh, perspective and um, interest as far as Parthian history is concerned. So very important to sort of fill out our, our puzzle that we're building. Unfortunately, no history of the Parthians that was written by the Parthians has survived. There's no account. In fact, um, no Greek and Roman histories of the Parthians, which we know that they were writing. It was a very popular form of history, of, of, of literature in the, uh, the Greek and the Roman worlds. So we know that they existed at one point because other historians referenced them. But unfortunately, they have not survived because so much from antiquity hasn't survived. So not only do we not have anything from the Parthians, we don't even have a full history from the Greeks and the Romans. As I mentioned, Justin's summary uh, is really the best thing that we have. But since the Parthians didn't leave us any histories of their own. It's it's sort of interesting, again, to look at the Greeks and the Romans. And the Romans writing, uh, in particular, at the, in the Augustan age, when they are in, increasingly becoming interested in who the Parthians are, we have uh, writers uh, in this period actually saying that the Parthians were very private and often very silent people. And there's almost this sort of literary frustration that the Roman writers seem to have is that they're interested in Parthian sources from Parthian perspectives, but they simply don't exist, right? So this is a sort of Roman frustration with how quiet and private the Parthians are. Um, also, the Romans seem to be unaware of any Parthian historians. Maybe Parthian historians existed, but we don't have any record of that in our Greek and Roman traditions. Also, something worth considering, much of whatever did survive to the third century CE or AD was either destroyed or suppressed by the subsequent imperial powers of the Sasanian Persians and the um, Muslim caliphates. And so basically uh, the Sasanian Persians saw the Parthians as degenerate interlopers, right? That they did not belong as the great imperial power in the Middle East. Uh, essentially the Sasanian Persians wanted to tie themselves to the Achaemenids. And then the, uh, the Muslims who take over the Middle Eastern world uh, see essentially the Parthians as, as infidels, right? And so they're very uninterested in, in what's going on in this uh, period of antiquity. Uh, and so basically, if, if things did survive in the Parthian world up to, say, the early third century, uh, much of that was destroyed or suppressed in the subsequent generations throughout the Middle East, unfortunately. Maybe I've painted a little bit of a of a, a drab picture as far as what do we know about the Parthians, but there is some um, silver lining. So if we're looking at what what are Parthian sources, right? What are the sources outside of the Greek and Roman tradition? Well, the, there are sources that are important that do exist. Most important, I would argue, is coinage. 
The Parthians were very prolific in, in uh, minting coinage across the Middle Eastern world, and so we have a great variety of their coinage, very beautiful coinage. And so the study of numismatics or the study of, of coinage is very much important for Parthian studies. Also, archaeological records are very important. There's been a lot of very critical and crucial developments in the archaeological uh, record, in the archaeological world, in the Parthian period. Uh, a lot of that has been done in recent decades, in fact. Uh, the only problem with the archaeological record, of course, is that without a narrative history, sometimes uh, the picture is, is very much up to interpretation. Also, because of the ongoing uh, geopolitical crisis in the modern Middle East, archaeological sites are always uh, at risk and sometimes are not able to be developed as fully as we would want to. Uh, another important source material as far as Parthian sources are concerned is epigraphical records. So this kind of goes hand in hand with archaeological records. So for example, um, important Parthian sites like Nisa. Nisa was one of the early capitals of the Parthians and the, the Parthians lived there for many, many, many generations. And so there are important sort of um, records that are being pulled out of old trash heaps, um, ostraca, which are, are broken uh, pottery sherds, uh, also sometimes served as scratch papers. So we sometimes have writing about the Parthians on these ancient uh, scratch papers, these, these pottery sherds. Uh, but yeah, so we get some important uh, epigraphical records of who the Parthians are from a Parthian perspective. And then the last major uh, Parthian source that I want to emphasize is something known as the Babylonian Astronomical Diaries. Essentially, once the Parthians conquered Mesopotamia, they conquered Babylon, um, the great city of Babylon. And Babylon had a great uh, reputation for being one of the great sort of cities of the world, one of the most affluent and, and advanced in the world. And they had, of course, a strong uh, class of, of educated peoples and also priests. And these uh, intellectuals in Babylon kept records known as the astronomical uh, diaries. And these diaries, of course, talk about kind of things like weather, um, the changing of the, the stars and the moon and the sun, those sorts of things. But also within that uh, sort of documentation are aspects of history. The Parthians have conquered this territory and all of a sudden the Babylonian scribes are increasingly interested on who are these Parthians and what are they accomplishing and what are their kings doing? So we do get this very interesting internal view of who the Parthians are, the 140s BCE moving forward, uh, as soon as the Parthians are able to take over Babylon specifically. So the study of the Parthians, as you can see, is a very delicate balance of carefully interpreting um, the available Greek and Roman narratives, but also as much as possible in incorporating available Parthian sources uh, and those materials. So coinage, archaeological records, epigraphical records, the, the astronomical diaries that I just talked about. Um, and in doing that, we, of course, have to be very careful. But if you are careful, I feel that Parthian history is very vibrant and we can see a lot of what the Parthians are doing and how they're accomplishing these great feats across the Hellenistic world. It isn't necessarily an easy subject matter because of the scarcity um, and sort of the, the chaotic nature sometimes of this, the remaining source materials. But I still find um, that there's great vibrancy to it and that there's a lot to be learned from the Parthians through both the Greeks and the Romans, but also through the available sources of themselves. While the Scythians, Massagetae, and Sarmatians, or Saromatae, certainly had their place in archaic and classical Greece, they were largely spread out and didn't necessarily have a figurehead like a Modu Chanyu, Attila the Hun, or Genghis Khan to unite them as a conquering force. How did the Parthians manage to differentiate themselves and create a unified political body, if you could call it that? Was it a gradual transformation of the dynamics between nomadic and settled societies, or were the Arsakids the ones mainly responsible? There is no doubt that the early 
Arsacid dynasty, uh, the early Arsacid rulers, if you will, were fundamentally important to the success of the Parthians. Uh, you would not have the success of the Parthians without this strong backbone of leadership. And under this strong and stable series of leaders, these early Arsacid leaders, the Parthians actually survived and thrived in what is a very violent and a very dangerous world. Uh, make no mistake, the Hellenistic Middle East was one of the most uh, chaotic and violent international environments in antiquity. And the Parthians are able to uh, sort of navigate very difficult and very troubling waters very successfully through this this great, you know, generally great leadership from the early Arsacids. Now, um, Parthian exception, uh, exceptionalism is something that I talk about in my book and uh, trying to understand what that means, right? So we kind of had this understanding of, of civilizations across the world. They sort of develop these sort of cultural techniques or technologies or military approaches that allow them to have an advantage over their competing uh, um, rivals, right? And so when we're trying to understand, well, what makes the Parthians exceptional, right? What allowed the Parthians to succeed in, in a very difficult neighborhood? I want to emphasize that I have found no evidence that their exceptionalism stems from some sort of unique bellicosity or unique aggression or some sort of unique warrior ethos. In my experience, uh, again, as, as sort of influenced by, by Arthur Eckstein, these sorts of things, high, high bellicosity, uh, high aggression, high warrior ethos, uh, militarized states, that these are all universal in antiquity. Every single surviving state has to be very aggressive, very warlike, because if you're not, you don't survive. And so uh, the Parthians are absolutely a warlike people. They love warfare. They're constantly fighting. However, that isn't where we find their exceptionalism. Rather, what I argue in my work is that the Parthians were actually exceptional in four other main areas. So the first area that I emphasize is that they had a very strong adaptability in their society. And this adaptability materialized in their flexible internalization of Greek, Persian, and nomadic elements into their social, administrative, and political identity. In essence, they were able to not be just one thing, they were able to be all things. Basically, they were able to take elements of the Greek world, the Persian world, the nomadic world, and they were able to meld that into their own personal identities, their own personal administration, their own personal uh, approaches to cultural uh, growth, right? And so there's this idea that they're able to adopt and evolve all of the best characteristics and all of the best policies for them specifically from the Greek, the Persian, and the nomadic traditions. So just some quick examples of this. Um, they are going to adopt Greek imagery, and they're going to adopt the Greek language as, as sort of the official language of the state. They're going to adopt Persian administrative structures. They're going to basically see how the Persians organize the world as, as a, a pretty good model to approach uh, and maintain. And then obviously, in a nomadic sense, they're going to retain their nomadic style of warfare. Now, all of this reflected very well, this sort of uh, flexibility, this sort of multiculturalism that the Parthians were able to develop, it very much reflected uh, well the multicultural world that was the Hellenistic Middle East, right? This is a very eclectic place to live with a lot of different peoples, a lot of different cultures, religious ideas, languages, and the Parthians are very good uh, as incoming migrants to be able to recognize that, uh, to be able to internalize that, and then use that to help them build a strong imperial foundation for rule throughout the Hellenistic Middle Eastern world. Um, they essentially 
actually could interact with a variety of different subjects and allies on familiar terms, right? If I'm negotiating with Central Asian tribes, I can talk to them in sort of familiar terminologies and sort of concepts of the nomadic warrior ethos. Uh, if I'm talking to Iranian communities, right, I can talk to them about sort of the traditions of the Persian uh, Empire, the Achaemenid Persian Empire that I'm also instituting into my administration. If I'm talking to Greek communities, which there are a lot of Greek communities now in the Hellenistic Middle East, I can use my imagery. I can use my language to make them also feel very uh, comfortable and familiar with my approach to imperialism. So the Parthians are able to develop a very adaptable, very flexible understanding of who they are and how they can uh, develop their social, administrative, and political identities. The second major area of exceptionalism that I've, I've discussed in my research is that the Parthians understand the importance of diversity and inclusion in their imperialism. So, for example, they were very active in integrating almost seamlessly uh, themselves into the more settled communities of the Iranian plateau, right? So Arsaces I and his Parni, there's no evidence of tension as far as their uh, their organization of power and authority in Parthia. Uh, they seem to have worked hand in hand with the already established aristocracy of Parthia, and that this was a very strong and workable relationship that really sort of set the tone moving forward with how the Parthians were going to interact with other subject and allied communities across uh, the wider Hellenistic world. Um, they also are going to allow more local autonomy and representation in exchange for centralized support, right? The idea is that unlike the accommodated Persians or the, uh, to a much greater extent, the, the Seleucid Macedonians, the Parthians are going to try to lean on local communities, local aristocracy to help support their rule. And the fact is that uh, many of these communities are very happy to have more local autonomy, to have more local representation, and they're usually very uh, willing to then give back to the uh, Parthians that sort of support of their centralized power. Uh, the idea here for the Parthians is that as much as possible, what they're trying to do here is they're trying to maximize the value of local communities and leaders for their own purposes, right? The idea is that the Parthians recognize, right, sort of this, this lack of arrogance uh, in this sort of imperial approach, that they are not necessarily the experts in Armenia or in Alimes or in Persis uh, or in Bactria, right? But the local communities and the local leaders are experts, right? So why not go ahead and tap into that expert sort of local knowledge and use that to help support and advance the centralized power and authority of the Parthians. That's really what they're trying to emphasize here. And this means that the Parthians are able to create a very dynamic, a very powerful, and a very integrated uh, system of imperial governance. And in fact, they're going to also implement a very strong vassalage system. This has led some historians to refer to Parthia and Parthian imperialism as feudal. I would recommend staying away from that term. Feudalism is a is in medieval studies. Feudalism is the true F word, if you if you will. Right. The, this idea that you really want to sort of stay away from this term. It's got so much baggage. It's got so many things. This sort of idea that the Middle Ages were this sort of dark and desperate period between the greatness that was Rome and antiquity. And then obviously the Italians and the Renaissance. And so feudalism comes with it as, with this sort of pejorative quality. Right. This sort of idea that feudal governments are lesser than. Right. They're not the great imperial governments that were more comfortable with. So it wasn't really a feudal society. The idea here is that they develop a very unique form of vassalage that actually is very strong. It's very well integrated. It allows the Parthians to call on the local expertise and manpower and wealth of these uh, communities and these aristocratic groups. Uh, and it allows them to be very successful for many, many centuries because of this flexibility. The third main area of exceptionalism that I've found is that the Parthians have a very unique mode of warfare, specifically a very unique mode of warfare within the Middle East and the wider Greco-Roman world. 
I argue, in fact, that the Parthians are the first world power to introduce the devastation of nomadic-style warfare in a sustainable imperial regime, right? Essentially, they are uh, the Huns before the Huns are the thing uh, are a thing. Uh, they are the Mongols before the Mongols are a thing, right? They're able to introduce their nomadic elements, especially their strong sort of attachment to nomadic-style warfare in a stable and very powerful imperial regime moving forward. Essentially, the Parthians have a cavalry-based military, right, from their nomadic origin, and this allows the Parthians to outmaneuver and overwhelm larger, more traditional Macedonian armies time and time again. Um, the Romans and the Macedonians should have been more successful against the Parthians, but it just is a testament to their leadership, uh, their ability to understand tactics and strategy, and their understanding of how to maximize the abilities of their military that they are so successful against uh, the, the two great military powers of antiquity, the Macedonians and the Romans. The Parthians relied specifically on a very unique asymmetric approach to tactics and their strategy. Uh, there is this sort of balance of a very light ar horse archer uh, as far as the core of the army, but that was also going to be balanced by a very heavy cavalry, what I call a super heavy cavalry. And this, these are the uh, the cataphracti, uh, the idea that the, the, the cataphracts of the uh, Parthian world are actually developed by the Parthians. Now, of course, there are elements uh, in, in the uh, Central Asian steppes that they're taking. There's elements from the nomadic, uh, or sorry, the uh, Macedonian cavalry traditions that they are also adapting. But it's really the Parthians who introduce and develop this idea of super heavy cavalry. And this super heavy cavalry is going to actually be introduced to the West through the Parthians. Uh, this is why, of course, the Parthian shot is is it's not something that the Parthians invent. No, of course, nomadic peoples um, around the world uh, in the pre-modern context use similar delivery of their of their horse archers and their fire. But it's known as the Parthian shot because the Parthians introduced this quality of warfare so successfully against the Greeks and the Romans that the Romans and the Greeks coined the Parthian shot, right? This idea that their military success against the Greeks and the Romans allows them to have this sort of uh, hyper um, sort of uh, reputation, if you will, as these great nomadic warriors. So with the introduction of the Parthian shot with their light cavalry, but also the introduction of these super heavy cavalry, the cataphractoi. The Parthians have this sort of perfect two-punch uh, approach to their tactics and their strategy. This allows them to be as deadly in their attacks as they are deadly in their withdrawals. And that's going to be both at the tactical and at the strategic level, which allows them a great deal of success over the course of their history. And then the final of the four uh, areas of exceptionalism that I found for the Parthians is that, again, going back to the strong and stable early Arsacid dynasty, the leadership of the early Arsacids is critical to the success of the Parthians. Unlike the Bactrians in ancient Afghanistan and unlike the Seleucids, who were torn apart by dynastic strife, they were torn apart by civil war after civil war, the early Arsacid dynasty is relatively stable, it's relatively strong, it's relatively uh, steady. There are no Parthian civil wars until the late 90s BCE, and that is a huge advantage that the Parthians have over the, the Bactrians and the Seleucids, because the Bactrians and the Seleucids are always fighting amongst themselves. They don't have a unified front, except for in rare occasions, and the Parthians always did have that unified front. And we have this sort of idea that the leadership of the Parthians, uh, uh, the Arsacids for the Parthians in this period, is essentially you have not only 
generally very brave warriors because they lead from the front. Um, they, they lead by example. Um, they're also very accomplished generals, generally. The idea is that you don't have many of these early Parthian kings who are not capable as not only warriors, but also as strategists, also as, as commanders. And so through this, there's this sort of understanding that the the Arsacids are, are not only important for the leadership of the state, but also the leadership of the army in this early period. And it's understood that the that the Arsacids are not leading uh, this, this world. They're not leading their empire as a despot, right? They're not a totalitarian leader. They understand the importance of sharing power, sharing responsibilities with a wide network and a wide ranging indigenous population. A lot of local communities, a lot of local leaders are fundamentally important to the success of the Arsacids and to the success of the early Parthians. Compared to the Chinese dynasties and their perpetual issues with the steppe nomads, the Greco-Roman world seems to have had very limited experience in dealing with a steppe society that could present a major threat. What was the general relationship between the Hellenistic kingdoms with the Parthians in this early period? Was it more acclimation, accommodation, or antagonistic in nature? Yeah, so actually, I would argue that a major failing of the Hellenistic Greek and Macedonian kingdoms was their actual lack of interest in creating strong and workable relationships with nomadic peoples from the Central Asian steppe when compared to the policies of the Achaemenid Persians and the Arsacid. Uh, the relationship of the Seleucids and the Bactrians towards the Central Asian nomads generally was very distant, very isolated, and highly antagonistic. Alexander the Great and the Seleucids established ancient Afghanistan, a, a region known as Bactria, essentially as a bulwark or a shield against Central Asian peoples, right? There's not a lot of integration. There's not a lot of, of back and forth. The idea is that the fortresses of Bactria are there as a, a defense against the wider Central Asian world. Uh, the Seleucids and the Bactrians were really not interested at all in accommodation, right? As much as they could, they wanted to keep these people at arm's length, distant. You stay in your part of the world and we'll stay in our part of the world. The Central Asian peoples were mostly kept out of the Seleucid Empire as much as they possibly could be. And the Seleucids mostly wanted them to be pacified whenever possible. And so it's very much an antagonistic and sort of violent relationship that the Seleucids and the Bactrians have towards these Central Asian peoples. Now, the Parthians' relationship with the Seleucids and the Bactrians was similarly hostile uh, in general. And the idea here is that the Parthians are constantly fighting and bickering with the, the Bactrians and the Seleucids, that there is not a strong relationship that is being developed between these two, uh, between these various groups. And so this sort of helps explain why this is a period of such widespread war and chaos the Hellenistic period is a period of war, right, and, and, and very, very violent war. And the Parthians are going to be just a small piece of the larger puzzle of the Hellenistic uh, militarized world. And so therefore, if you have societies that are already highly militarized, you have uh, leaders who are already very eager to gain military glory, uh, and you have an environment that allows for this sort of instability and chaos, it's understandable that there is going to be a lot of antagonism and a lot of, of, of violence between these various groups. And certainly that's something that's really kind of universal in the Hellenistic period. And the Parthians, when they become a power, are going to uh, essentially grow uh, grow over the course of several generations, and they're going to ultimately be successful. The Parthians and the various Central Asian peoples eventually triumph over the Bactrians and the Seleucids. In fact, they help destroy the once great powers of the Seleucids and the Bactrians. They are very fundamental 
important to that. I would argue, in fact, I do in my research, that the Parthians are far more important as far as the destruction of Seleucid power than the Romans ever were. Everyone sort of sees the defeat of Antiochus III at the Battle of Magnesia and the Treaty of Apamea as the sort of death nail that ends the Seleucid power, but that's not true. The Seleucids for several generations after that are very powerful and very important, especially in the Near East and the Middle East. It's really the Parthians. It's the Parthians who bring the Seleucids to their knees, in particular with the capture of Demetrius uh, the second, and also the killing of Antiochus the seventh in the 130s and the 120s BCE. Now, although the Parthians also had at times a a very sort of antagonistic relationship or, or, or uh, a relationship of conflict with the Central Asian peoples, once the Parthians established their own imperial space across the Hellenistic Middle Eastern world, essentially you start seeing a movement towards trying to create a relationship with Central Asian peoples. In particular, this movement is spearheaded by Mithridates II. And Mithridates II, after he defeats the invaders of the Iranian plateau, is going to put forward policies uh, and major efforts to try to integrate these various Central Asian peoples into his empire. He doesn't want to push them back out, as would be the policy of the and the Seleucids. He wants to have them be a part of the growing multiculturalism of the Parthian Empire, and he wants to integrate these people and settle them and make them working and viable uh, citizens and, and fighters for his, uh, for his regime. And so he is going uh, to essentially create a, a system of inclusion for Central Asian peoples within the Iranian plateau. And this is going to create generations of relative peace and prosperity along the Eastern frontier. Uh, after the collapse of the Parthian frontier in the 120s, essentially with the efforts of Mithridates II, we're not going to have a major conflict between the Parthians and the Central Asians for over the course of the next two centuries. Generally, this is a very uh, affable and a very uh, prosperous working relationship that they're able to develop across their very extensive and sometimes very vulnerable eastern frontier uh, with these various Central Asian peoples. You kind of addressed this earlier, but given that the extent of their territory comprised much of the former Seleucid Empire, how did the nomadic Parthians come to terms with ruling over a highly urbanized society? Did they express any degree of quote-unquote Hellenization or Near Eastern influence in their visual arts or the way that they projected their power? Yes, yes. So Parthian imperialism essentially was a hybrid of Persian and Greek examples. So let me just go ahead and hit some of the highlights of these, uh, these examples. So in the Persian model, the Parthians are going to adopt Persian, uh, the Persian satrapal system, administrative system of the of the Middle Eastern world that had been established all the way in the classical period. So the Parthians are very active in saying, you know, this isn't broken, so there's no need no no need to fix it, uh, and they're very happy to just sort of continue on what the Achaemenid Persians and the Seleucid Empire have been doing before them, as far as the satrapies of the empire are concerned. Also, the Parthians are going to adopt Persian titulature. The, 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 in particular, the most important title that they will adopt is they are going to a, a, adopt the Persian title of King of Kings, right? This idea that our Sassid leaders, right, the, the kings of the Parthians are, are essentially the superior kings, the dominant kings, right? There's a, this is a world full of kings, but the Parthian king is the greatest of kings, which is directly modeled off the Achaemenid Persians as well. Also, the, per, the, the Parthians are going to value uh, Persian administrative integration and inclusiveness, right? So this idea that uh, they're far more, the Parthians are far more flexible and inclusive than the Seleucids and the Bactrians. And this is something, again, that they sort of adopt from Persian traditions that had been uh, very successful for many, many generations by this point. Now, as far as, as Greek examples are concerned, 
the Parthians, as I mentioned, are going to adopt Greek as their official language, right? That's the language of the state is, is Greek. The Parthians are going to start minting coins in a Greek manner, meaning that their coins are very familiar to other uh, sort of systems of currency and coin production in the Greek world. The Parthians are also going to adopt the Greek concept of ruler cults, which the Parthians increasingly like, this idea that, of course, the ruler and his family have this sort of divine quality to them. And that's something that, of course, the Parthians are going to say, that's perfect for our imperial propaganda. Let's have some of that as well. The Parthians are, are almost universally going to proclaim themselves as Philhellenes, right? The idea is that they are the friends of the Greeks. They are the admirers of the Greeks. They want to ingratiate themselves with the Greeks uh, there's many, many Greek communities throughout their, their empire, and so they want these Greek communities to feel comfortable under Parthian rule, and this is one way to do it, right, to sort of claim that they are Philhellenes, that they are these admirers of the Greeks, these friends of the Greeks. And they also are going to be very active in working closely with Greek communities and Greek leaders. So, for example, the Babylonian astronomical diaries tell us on several occasions that Parthian uh, kings actually elect Greek leaders, local Greek leaders, to rule as mayors, to rule as commanders, to rule as governors. And so therefore, there is a strong working relationship between the Parthians and the Greeks in these various communities. Now, the Parthians, um, I would argue, are unequivocally Hellenistic. They are indeed a part of the Hellenistic world. The Parthians are a continuation, perhaps the most important continuation of the Hellenistic tradition, of the Hellenistic experience, of the Hellenistic world. Uh, Hellenistic essentially being a term that we, we've kind of created in, in the modern uh, hist historiography, uh, Hellenistic being Greekish, right? So it's, the Parthians are indeed Greekish, right? They're not Greeks, but they are, are Greek influenced in many ways. And we see this Hellenistic tradition in their culture and in their politics over and over and over again. They brilliantly blended Greek, Persian, and nomadic elements into who they are uh, or who they were and, and, and how they were going to rule over this very large and, and eclectic world that they had come to conquer. Yet they were not simply copycats. And I really want to emphasize that because that, again, is part of the historiography, unfortunately, that the Parthians are sort of this degenerative version of greater imperial powers that had come before them and will come after them. Right. That they simply simply are just copy pasting from the, the better rulers of, of the world, you know, the Greeks, the Romans, Persians, so on and so forth. I would very much fight against that idea. They, they, they were absolutely not simply copycats. They were not a, a degenerative version of imperialism. They, in fact, the Parthians expressed themselves through individuality in how they adopted and adapted these various Greek and Persian elements. So, for example, in coinage, right, as I said, they adopt uh, a lot of strong visual elements from Greek coinage. Their coinage, of course, follows Greek models. It looks very much like Greek coins. Uh, it has Greek as the language of the coinage, right? So when you see a Parthian coin, it has Greek on it. But that being said, the image of the Parthian kings is often Persianized in the sense that their clothes are very much Middle Eastern. Their, um, how they're doing their hair is very Middle Eastern. They grow large beards in the Middle Eastern or Persian tradition. Um, they also are going to, however, not only emphasize Greek elements and Persian elements in their coinage, their coinage also emphasizes the importance of archery and the idea of their nomadic past, right? The roots of their nomadic military. And so you, again, have this sort of perfect representation of this, this sort of uh, varied and eclectic style of rule that the Parthians are building through their coinage, right? We sometimes say that in, in, in antiquity, the greatest form of propaganda is a society's coinage, right? Because it can, and basically from every single element that's included on a coin is included on purpose and for propagandistic um, value. 
And we see that, of course, in Parthian coinage, where you have a Greek sense of what coinage is, the Greek language included, but this idea of the imagery of Persian power and authority and, and sort of Persianism in your style of dress and, and your style of, of um, looking, your fashion, uh, but then also hearkening back to the importance of your nomadic roots in the form of your archery. Now, the Parthian military is really one of the most interesting aspects on whether or not you know, we see any Hellenization in their military system. And I would actually argue that we do not. The Parthian military was, in my opinion, not influenced by the Greeks or the Persians at all. It is 100% unique in the wider Hellenistic world. This is a nomadic style of militarism. This is a nomadic style of warfare. And the Parthians are very proud of that and they want to keep it that way. Uh, they had a, a litany of opportunities to conform or reform or adapt their military to more traditional Greek or Persian or Roman models. And time and time again, they do not do this. They decide that their traditional nomadic approach to warfare is indeed the best approach to warfare for their society. And I would agree with them because they're very successful with that approach to warfare. Now, finally, although the Parthians adopted several elements of Persian and Greek art and architecture into their world, I again want to emphasize they are not simply copy-pasting. They, in fact, adapt and adopt all of these things to their own tastes. So two examples that I always like to point to is the, uh, the beautiful vaulted halls of Tessaphon. Now, Tessaphon was the imperial capital of the Parthians in Mesopotamia. Unfortunately, we do not have many ruins available, but the ruins that do survive of Tessaphon are amazing. They're beautiful. And they are a Parthian sort of adaptation of Greek uh, architecture. So we can see that, of course, we have influence from the Greek world, but the Parthians have made it their own, right? So they have their own sort of individuality within their architectural approaches. Also, I point to the dynamism, sort of the beautiful uh, dynamism of Parthian front, uh, what's known as frontality. And frontality is a style of sculpture where the tradition within the Greco-Roman um, art uh, sculptural um, approach in the classical period and in the Hellenistic period is mostly of the profile, right? The emphasis on the importance of the profile. However, Parthian artists are going to slowly over the course um, of several generations, they're going to start adapting away from the emphasis on profile towards what's known as frontality. The idea that sculpture no longer is going to in, uh, engage the audience in profile, it's going to engage the audience directly. Right? The idea that you're going to have figures that are facing and directly engaging the viewer. And so this is a Parthian, again, sort of something that's influenced by the Greek and Roman world, but then is basically tweaked or adapted for Parthian uh, artistic tastes. And this emphasis on frontality within the Parthian world uh, in their artistry is later going to be heavily favored by the, the Sassanid Persians and also by the Romans. In fact, if you and your readers are familiar with, with Byzantine coins, for example, they have uh, an emphasis on frontality. The emperor no longer has a profile. He, he engages somebody holding his coin directly through this Parthian approach of frontality. With the gradual collapse and demise of the Seleucids and other Hellenistic dynasties, mutual expansion brought the Parthians in contact with the Romans. How did their relationship compare to their Hellenistic predecessors, and what were some of the major consequences? Yeah, so the relationship between the Parthians and the Romans was completely different from the relationship of the Parthians and the Seleucids and Bactrians, mainly because by the time the Romans and the Parthians are interacting, both of them have already established world empires. The Romans are the dominant power in the Mediterranean, and the Parthians are the dominant power in the Middle East, meaning there's just going to be a different interaction between peer empires going on in this later period. So 
the Romans and the Parthians, they establish really starting with, you know, kind of Crassus in the mid 50s BCE, they establish a establish a nearly three century long imperial rivalry with one another. And the Romans and the Parthians are indeed sort of pure world powers. Uh, at times, this rivalry is indeed very violent. Uh, however, I want to emphasize that mostly this relationship is rather cordial and mutually beneficial. They uh, they often get along and they often make a lot of money off of each other. And they usually are very sort of uh, cordial in their internet, their uh, diplomatic exchanges except for in certain sort of periods of, of violence. So uh, just as sort of a background of Romans meeting the Parthians, uh, the Romans and the Parthians first made contact in the middle 90s BCE, uh, the sort of famous meeting of Solo with the, representat uh, the representatives of uh, Mithridates II. But really until the middle 50s BCE, that is about 40 years later, the relationship of the Romans and the Parthians was very distant, it was very confused. It was very awkward. It was very isolated. You have to understand that these these major imperial powers were developing in different parts of the world, and they didn't really care much about what was going on in the other person's part of the world uh, in these early interactions. They mostly, you know, they, they were aware of each other. They sometimes talked, but mostly they wanted to sort of keep their distance. You kind of go do your thing in the Mediterranean, and I'll go do my thing in the Middle East. Now, obviously, that starts changing with the violence of, of Crassus and Mark Antony, right? The major campaigns of the Romans to invade and ravage the Parthian Empire. Uh, as we know, Crassus and Mark Antony fail in these efforts, right? These failed invasions, they're catastrophes. They are some of the worst defeats that Rome has ever suffered. Crassus loses arguably 30,000 soldiers, and Antony loses far more than that. And so uh, we have these major failed invasions that essentially are going to encourage Augustus in about a generation later to avoid a major war in the East against the Parthians. And instead, Augustus is going to favor diplomacy and sort of negotiations. He's going to look for a subsequent peace with uh, the Parthians, and that peace is going to be arrived upon between Augustus and uh, the Parthian king at this time, Phraates V, and a peace is going to be struck at, on one in 1 CE, or 1 AD. And this peace between Augustus and the Parthians is going to essentially establish what international relation theorists would call a bipolar imperial rivalry, in the sense that uh, essentially you now have two major imperial powers that share power across the international environment, or in their case, really the known world. And this is a very large, expansive, multicultural world. This is a world that is uh, essentially an interconnective environment of both the Mediterranean and the Middle Eastern worlds, that, that essentially you have Rome, who is the power in the Mediterranean, and you have the Parthians, who are the power in the Middle East. Now, this establishes what many historians call the Cold War period between Rome and Parthia, and the Cold War period basically lasts for the entirety of the remainder of their rivalry over the course of essentially two and a quarter centuries. And it's disturbed only periodically with major conflicts. So, for example, under Nero, we have the campaigns of Corbulo. Uh, we have the invasions of Trajan. We have the invasions of the generals of Lucius Verus. And then obviously we have the destructive invasions of the Severans, Septimius Severus and Caracalla. But these are sort of minor, they're not minor, they're, they're, they're major violent explosions, but they are relatively spaced out. They are relatively infrequent compared to much longer periods of, of you know, Cold War or sort of more cordial exchanges between these, uh, these empires. Uh, by the end of the first century BCE, 
both powers, Rome and Parthia, essentially had maxed out their imperial capabilities. Um, even the Romans, with, with arguably the greatest military in antiquity, they essentially realize they can't keep expanding, right? They basically have to hold on to what they have increasingly. And the Parthians are the same. The Parthians are dealing, they, they're, they're working with even less military resources. And so therefore, both imperial powers have sort of reached their natural limits, if you will, by the time they're sort of starting to interact with one another. And so therefore, warfare was always possible between the Romans and the Parthians. And indeed, as I just talked about, sometimes there were major periods of warfare. But conquest of one another was not a realistic goal, right? Uh, when we see things in the source materials, like Plutarch talking about Crassus wanting to emulate Alexander the Great and conquer the Middle East and conquer India, that's simply rhetoric. That's propaganda. That's, that's not something that was realistically a hope or a desire from Roman commanders in their wars against the Parthians. Uh, even when we talk about Trajan, who, who allegedly sort of cried on the shores of the Persian Gulf because he was not, he was too old to be able to follow in the steps of Alexander and invade the Iranian plateau. Again, I, I find these these uh, examples to be dubious, right? That, that actually that that was never a goal for either power. Uh, warfare certainly was, but conquest of one another simply was not realistic. But but basically, the Romans and the Parthians generally viewed one another as pure world empires, and we see that in the sources. Several Roman writers admit that the Parthians are great warriors that have stopped the Romans on several occasions, and that essentially the world is split between Rome and Parthia. And although they sort of view themselves as pure world powers, during this large Cold War period, uh, both are continually maneuvering to one-up one another whenever possible, right? So this idea that they're always kind of trying to figure out a way to have some sort of advantage over one another, but not necessarily uh, full-scale warfare. Now, the Romans respected the Parthians' military prowess uh, and they really respected their imperial success. And again, we see that over and over again in the source materials. There's this sort of idea that the Parthians are um, this hybrid, right? They're, they're Middle Easterners. So in the Greco-Roman model, that means that they are servile by, by nature. They are duplicitous. They are lazy. Um, however, the Parthians and the Greeks have – or sorry, the Romans and the Greeks have to admit the Parthians keep beating us in warfare. So there must be something to this. So when we look at the stereotypes from the Greco-Roman tradition of Parthians, there's this sort of – begrudging respect that they have for Parthian military prowess and imperial success, this idea that um, although they are Eastern and so therefore naturally servile, duplicitous, cruel, they're also great warriors. And so that has to be respected. So there's a sort of idea that uh, the Parthians are worthy uh, adversaries in many Roman sources. And what we also see materialized in the sources, and this is something that I've talked about in my research, is that the Romans truly considered their conflict with the later Sasanian Persians, right? The, who, the Sasanian Persians who replaced the Parthians as the new imperial power in the Middle East. The Romans view that very long and very devastating conflict with the Sasanian Persians as not a new conflict, but as indeed a continuation of their already established rivalry with the Parthians. And they continue this idea all the way through late antiquity. We have writers in the fifth century who are still referring to the Parthians, who are still talking about the value of fighting the Parthians and talking about how the Parthians are great warriors and sort of the imperial rivals of the Romans. So it's a very interesting dynamic of how the Romans sort of view the Parthians in their relationship, um, their imperial relationship and their longstanding imperial rivalry. Your upcoming book, Reign of Arrows, The Rise of the Parthian Empire in the Hellenistic Middle East, seems to be the first real study on early Parthian history in quite some time. Could you tell us more in regards to what exactly is the focus of the work, and what was your main goal in trying to write it? Yeah, I would be happy to. So, 
I, I wanted to write this book to introduce one of the greatest yet most underrepresented world empires in history to a broad audience. Um, and that audience, I know, will, will, of course, be specialists, but I really wanted to bring the Parthians to general readers as well, which is why, again, I really appreciate this opportunity to share this with your listeners. I find the Parthians fascinating, and I would 100% argue that the Parthians indeed were one of the greatest and most accomplished peoples in history, and therefore I want to help facilitate a discussion about the Parthians through this, uh, through my research and then, of course, through this book. I would argue that this book is not a radical reaction against the accomplishments of the Greeks and the Romans. Uh, I understand that the Greeks and the Romans accomplished great things, absolutely. Uh, rather, this book attempts simply to broaden the conversation and to balance the scales of history by considering the agency of Eastern peoples, right? Eastern peoples are not uh, robots, right? They have feelings, they have desires, they have goals, objectives. Uh, and I want as much as possible through this book to show that the Parthians are just as active in trying to understand uh, who they are, what they're doing uh, to gain their survival, their, their stability, and expand their power and their authority as much as the Greeks and the Romans were also doing at this time. If you'll permit me, uh, I would like to be able to just briefly read a, a quick description of the book for your listeners. So this is available as sort of a, a, a blurb of, of my book. So uh, Reign of Arrows uh, is, is essentially um, summarized thusly. So from its origins as a minor nomadic tribe to its status as a major world empire, the rise of the Parthian state in the ancient world is nothing short of remarkable. In their early history, the Parthians benefited from strong leadership, a flexible and accommodating cultural identity, and innovative military characteristics that allowed them to compete against and even overcome Greek-Persian Central Asian, and eventually Roman rivals. Reign of Arrows provides the first comprehensive study in almost a century dedicated entirely to early Parthian history, assimilating a wide array of especially recent scholarship across numerous fields of study. I present the most cogent, well-rounded, and up-to-date account of the Parthian Empire in its wider context of Hellenistic history. It explains the political and military encounters that shaped the of the Hellenistic Middle East, from the middle third to the early first centuries BCE, this study combines traditional historical approaches such as source criticism and the integration of material evidence with the incorporation of modern international relations theory to better examine the emergence and expansion of Parthian power. Relevant to historians, classicists, political scientists, and general readers interested in the ancient world and military history, Reign of Arrows reimagines and reconstructs the rise of the Parthians within the hotly contested and dangerously competitive international environment of the Hellenistic world. So ultimately, right, with that sort of in mind, what I find in the study of the Parthians is an underrepresented yet fascinating people who accomplished great things. And so I want as much as possible for my research to allow part, uh, allow people to be open to Parthian studies, make them aware of Parthian studies, and hopefully be as fascinated with the Parthians as I am uh, as well. I was excited to learn that a new book on the Parthians was being published, given that it has been a major challenge to find any recent sources regarding them. And steppe societies in general are one of my niche little interests, so I'm definitely looking forward to getting my hands on a copy. Currently, it's available for pre-order until it's shipped out on May the 1st, 2020. And am I correct in saying that you have provided the opportunity for listeners of the show to receive a discount if they pre-order from Oxford University Press's website? So, um, so if Oxford University website and select the Academic and Professional tab, you can simply search Reign of Arrows, the title of the book, 
to find my book for pre-sale, pre-orders, and purchases. As as uh, Derek mentioned to the listeners, I've secured a 30% discount promo for pre-orders through the Oxford University Press website. Uh, that promo code, I'm sure, will be shared on his various uh, social medias, but it is AAFLYG6. Copies of the book also are available through any major distribution site like Amazon. I would like to to also uh, make sure that I, I thank uh, not only you, Derek, but also your listeners for your time and attention and interest. Uh, and I hope you do indeed uh, buy the book and find uh, great value and interest in it as well. Well, with that in mind, I think this might be an excellent place to wrap up our discussion. I will definitely make sure to provide a link and discount code in the show notes and episode description if listeners are interested along with a number of your papers for further reading. I just wanted to thank you once again for joining me on the podcast, and the best of luck on your book's release. Are there any future projects that the audience and I could look forward to once Reign of Arrows is said and done? Yes, so I did talk a bit about some forthcoming uh, articles and book chapters earlier. However, I do have a, um, a subsequent um, major uh, research project. So essentially, this is my planned second book project that uh, I will be working on. It's, it's in many ways sort of a continuation of the first project. The tentative title of that for right now is Rome and its Eastern Rivals, Resistance to Roman Imperialism in the Near East during the First Century BCE. Uh, this will be an examination of cultural and political opposition to Roman rule in the Near East and the growing rivalry of the Romans and the Parthians in both their policies and propaganda in the first century BCE. Now, that being said, it's not going to simply just focus on the Parthians. It's also going to be talking about very interesting characters like Tigranes II of Armenia and also the very infamous Mithridates VI of Pontus. So a lot of very uh, interesting characters, uh, a lot of uh, very good warfare going on in that period, and a lot of very sort of uh, awkward and, and interesting interactions between the Romans and these various um, Eastern powers. So I'm very excited about that project. And uh, although it will take uh, a couple of years to complete, that would be sort of the, the thing on the horizon to keep uh, your eyes out open for. Excellent to hear. So until next time, you've been listening to the Hellenistic Age podcast. <laughs>